one of the guys like touched him or did something and then he felt really weird. He felt this thing. He felt like his penis was vanishing and was gone. And, uh, and he accused these guys of, of stealing his penis. And they were like, whatever, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. And so he was like, made them go to the uh, hospital to verify that his penis was, was gone. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with travel writer and author Frank Burroughs, whose book, The Geography of Madness, is about culture-bound syndromes such as penis theft, which is an actual concern in places like China and West Africa. As we discuss in the interview, these syndromes sound on the surface like news of the weird type curiosity items that you might see in your social media feed around Halloween, but in fact they're underpinned by the same social factors that affect the way those of us in the United States experience seemingly normal afflictions like depression and anxiety and PMS. In a sense, these syndromes are tied into the stories we tell ourselves within our own culture about how the world works and how we all influence each other to the point that what we believe about what makes us sick can actually influence the ways we become sick and the ways we recover from sickness. This episode is sponsored by Airtrex, whose online flight planning tools are a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. You know, since the pandemic started, I've actually seen an uptick of interest in Airtrex as friends and listeners alike have used its online tools, both to see which global flight routes are still operating during COVID and to research round-the-world journeys they've been dreaming of taking when the pandemic is over. Check out those flight planning tools at Airtrex.com to see why this can be such a fun and useful exercise. All right, here's Frank Burrs and I talking about culture-bound syndromes and just what it is we're talking about when we talk about things like penis theft. Let's listen in. Your book is The Geography of Madness. The, the subtitle is Penis Thieves, Voodoo Death, and the Search for the Meaning of the World's Strangest Syndromes, which in, invariably, when I've heard interviewers talk to you about this, they get really excited about that subtitle, Penis Thieves, which it, it's funny. Like I met you years and years ago in Thailand. I think when you first were finding out about penis thieves um, through the BBC. So like I've known about the penis thief aspect of your project for years and years. And so it just sounds less weird to my ear. Have you sort of become an expert now? Are you like the, the penis thief whisperer after all these years talking about uh, cultural, these cultural syndromes and things? Yeah, that's sort of my, my, my subtitle. That's probably going to be on my gravestone at some point. Um, but yes, I mean that, that you're right. Like I, so we first met in, uh, Bangkok when my wife and I were living there and I probably did, I'm sure I mentioned it to you cause I had, I had seen these stories in, that would have been like 2002 or three. And, uh, I had first started seeing these stories around 2001, uh, just about just kind of general news stories about penis stealing incidents that caused some sort of mob violence in West Africa and Benin and Nigeria. And, I always sort of thought that would be a great story just to go and not not like to, to, to investigate whether it's true or debunk it or anything like that, but just to kind of get into that a world where it, <clears throat> the striking thing about it was that, that nobody really 
doubted that it was possible or seemed to, you know, just judging by the way the crowds responded to accusations of somebody magically stealing somebody else's penis. And so, and so when, um, you, say, when you say nobody, you mean nobody in like Nigeria, for instance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure there's somebody, but, you know, generally most people would just take it at face value that that's, this happened and could happen to you and is a, a dangerous thing that you should kind of watch out for. And so... I, my interest, you know, I was, I've always been interested in culture, you know, having been like an exchange student and gone through some pretty severe culture shock and cultural immersion and, um, you know, by sort of becoming a little bit bicultural in some way and being able to see on both sides of the mirror, uh, of, of different cultures a little bit, you know, I've always been interested in how complete uh, a, a cultural world feels, you know, when you're inside it and everybody else around you believes the same thing and tells the same stories and, and understands the, the, the things that are stitching together the world in the same way. And I thought that in, <clears throat> I thought that <clears throat> it would be really interesting to just get, to see what, what this world looks like inside where, where these things can happen, you know, what's it like to live in a place like that? And so, I mean, that's a hard story to sell to a magazine editor. I did talk to editors at the, at the, um, some of the big men's magazines and, you know, they were kind of interested. It's, I think Esquire was a little bit interested and gear. I talked to Bob Guccione Jr. at gear magazine. And I remember, he said, you know, we're not going to spend all this money to to send you to Nigeria and, and just essentially find out that this is not true, that people's penises aren't be, being stolen and to find nothing. And, and I knew it wasn't nothing, but I didn't really know how to articulate it. And I didn't, but I just, and I just knew this was kind of a rich story in a way. And so around 2000, in 2005, I think I went, I just went on my own and funded it myself and I had one assignment to do a story about the literary scene in in Nigeria for for Tin House magazine and um <clears throat> and I had some other ideas but basically I just took a big risk and went and uh, it worked out really well I I met some great people I was hanging around with these with journalists one guy named Tony Khan and who who was kind of instrumentally helped me meet the right people and I ended up meeting a couple of people who said they had their felt or had they said they had their penises stolen I don't know how to phrase that exactly uh, and um, <clears throat> and was able to kind of get their perspective on what that's like and and uh, and it was it turned out it turned out really well and so then then I spent the next couple of years trying to sell that story until finally was able to land it at Harper's like seven years after after I first f first started thinking about about the story and you know at, at a certain level it's sort of a news of the weird story but um to not give too much away, just sort of hint at where we're headed. It's actually like we in the West have our own iteration of penis theft. It's just so culturally normal that we've stopped thinking about the penis theftness of our own cultural idiosyncrasies. Um, and so I want to come back to the specifics of penis theft and what exactly was going on. But am I right in saying that you you were sort of thinking about writing a book about culture shock when I first met you? <clears throat> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, I've always been interested in in culture and culture shock and I did have that as a as a goal at one point but you know it was just one of those ideas that never 
never quite congealed and uh and eventually i mean it's all all it's not unrelated to this as far as dealing with sort of one of the questions that i eventually had to kind of answer in the book is for myself anyway is what what is culture and how does it how does it affect us and um and that's sort of a similar question that was at the heart of the of the culture shock book although if i would have written that then i don't think i would have had as 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 good of an answer well i'm curious to know about your first experiences with other cultures and culture shock because in reading some of the articles and and you've written in, in your book there are some examples from korea like fan death the idea that turning on a fan in your house can possibly kill you and i my first real immersive overseas experience was what turned out to be 2 years of teaching english in korea and i remember fears of fan death it was it didn't happen a lot among my students who tended to be a little bit younger but there was this commonly accepted idea that one should be careful around fans. Um, and then also I was, well, there, there's several levels at which Korea surprised me culturally. It's just when, it's when I realized how American I was. I realized that, for example, America sees individualism as a positive thing, whereas in Korea, the direct translation of individualism is, is sort of a pejorative word. It's seen as a little bit of a betrayal of community. Also, my students, who were very modern, middle to upper middle class Koreans at a time when Korea was really booming economically, would go and get Chinese medicine. You know, they would go get traditional medicine. Their mothers or they would go to fortune tellers. I had young students who would find out when they should get married because then, and they would go to fortune tellers to find out. And then they would get married. If the fortune teller say, said, you need to get married, um, you, you will be married in two years, then they would just find a spouse within two years. And that really, really shocked and surprised me when I first moved to Korea. But, you know, eventually I realized that the U.S. and, and the West has its own cultural idiosyncrasies. And so I'm curious. I know that you spent time in Tanzania as a teacher yourself. Uh, when I met you in Thailand, you were teaching in southern Thailand for a while. How did you stumble upon the idea of cultural difference and how it affects us or how cultural – not just cultural difference, but how culture itself – is a lens through which we see the world. Yeah, I mean, there, uh, there's like every day there's something, you know, people will come up to you and ask you if they can have your glasses or something or people or, you know, you're expected to come to somebody's house and you have no idea why and you have to sit there for hours and hours and you don't really know why you're there. Um, and those kind of things, those kind of everyday things uh, take a long time to figure out what exactly is the, is the, chain of events that you are supposed to be part of here. Um, you know, so, so it's all that kind of stuff. It's kind of communication stuff. It's, um, behavioral stuff, interpersonal stuff, but it's also, I mean, there's also a lot of belief things too, that you're not necessarily privy to. Um, Tanzania has a big, fairly big belief in witchcraft, uh, which, you know, and, and the powers of different, um, people and parts of the body and things like that. There's always some kind of narrative that is happening that you are trying to reverse engineer while you're, while you're taking part in it. And that's, you know, and I think that's in a way, the best way to travel and to be in another culture is to try is to be trying to figure out what are the the stories that people think are happening here and what and that they're part of and that you're part of, and um, 
you know, I think in a lot of ways that's that's your role as a traveler and a and a kind of guest in that culture is to try to understand what what narrative ecosystem you're part of. Well, let's let's jump on uh, the penis theft in Nigeria story, just because I'm curious to know about that narrative ecosystem, how it gave rise to the idea of penis theft and people being murdered for penis theft. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know that penis theft also happens in places like China and Hong Kong and Singapore. That there are, there are similar. It's not specific to West Africa. So, mm-hmm. I guess just tell us what did you discover when you went to Nigeria and points beyond to investigate this phenomenon of uh, phenomenon of of penis theft. Well, it, it like it was interesting because I was ta- I was hanging out with journalists and they would they would at first be like, oh, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then the more you talk to them, it's like, well, well, it's maybe possible. And then after a few beers or more than a few beers, they'd be like, well, actually this happened to my aunt. You know, I know of somebody that's happened to my neighbor, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and it's just, it's just kind of all around you. And, it's so I I met a guy named Stari Zobazi who was a journalist and uh, you know smart guy uh, and I talked to him and he had had this experience where he was a Jehovah's Witness and you know there it was this was in the there was a wave of penis theft that happened around I think 1990 it was and um, you know he was walking to the bus stop and these two guys came up and asked him directions to some place that he said, I think didn't exist. If I can remember the details. And, um, and one of the guys like touched him or did something. And then he felt really weird. He felt this thing. He felt like his penis was vanishing and was gone. And, uh, and, and he accused these guys of, of stealing his penis. And they were like, whatever, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. And so he was like, made them go to the uh, hospital to verify that his penis was was gone. Uh, And so they all went to the hospital and uh, he said just before they went in, the guy put his hand on his uh, shoulder and said something and it made his penis like come back. And so um, but he was completely convinced that this was real and you know happened to him and you know it was a dangerous thing that you should you should watch out for um the other uh the other person i i i'm pretty sure i met was a guy named uh wasu karimu and and uh tony the guy i was uh, staying with tony khan um found an article in one of the papers that uh, a guy had been put in jail for falsely accusing a woman of stealing his penis. And it's really interesting. I mean, Lagos is a huge city. I mean, it's not even a city, it's actually a state, but it's, um, you know, it's 17 million people and they gave the address where this guy lived. And so we, we were able to drive out there to the exact place where this guy's house was and ask, ask him about it. And, um, and, you know, there was this kind of gang that surrounded our car and like threatened us and wanted to know. They thought we were sent by the woman uh, who they were convinced had stolen his penis because he'd been let out of jail. And so they all knew the story and and uh, sort of told us the story. And I'm pretty sure the guy was was one of them um, there. But um, they'd been on a bus and 
he was sitting next to this woman and she like got didn't have a ticket and got out and touched him and then he felt like she had stolen his his penis and he kind of screamed and then a crowd gathered around her and almost lynched her and then the police had to come and stuff like that and so um well real real quick real quick just just because i'm people are probably wondering i mean since it's penis theft can't they medically check to see if his penis is there. Can they look in her purse to see if she stole the penis or is it not that simple? I mean, it just, to my ear, it sounds a little strange. It's not that simple. Um, because you know, if, I mean, there's a a couple of different ways to look at it you know, I talked to some, um, I talked to some, uh, psychiatrists or I read some accounts of psychiatrists who, who wrote about this and they said they will, um, talk, They'll, they, they, the victim will come in and they'll, they'll examine him and say, well, it looks, everything looks fine to me. And, the, and the, there are a couple of different, couple of different responses. The, the, the patient will either say like, no, you know, that's not really mine or mine's bigger than that. Or that the essence is gone, you know, or something like that. It just feels right. I mean, it's not, if you look at something like anorexia, where somebody looks in the mirror and sees themselves as too skinny, even though everybody else, it's obvious that they're or too is overweight, and um, to everybody else, it's obvious that they're not. Um, it's not that much different. It's kind of a it's kind of a dysmorphic thing. Or if you look at, we have uh, something in our culture called bigorexia, where where people um, men think they're they're too skinny and weak even though they're they're hugely muscular and so they end up taking steroids so they can be more muscular and so so it's not it's it it could be you know related to that in some ways it's not it's not dissimilar where somebody looks at their body and and just doesn't see um doesn't see what what the rest of us see i know that you investigated this a similar phenomenon in china for example and how was that different? How was it the same? What was going on? Is it is it a corollary to anorexia, or what culturally and psychologically is happening with the penis theft situation? Yes, there's a, a very similar, maybe the same. It's not the same exactly, but a similar syndrome that happens in in China, in Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, um, where people feel like their their genitals are being sucked into their body, and and if that happens, they're they're going to die. And but the story behind it is much different than in West Africa. In West Africa, it's mostly um, like forces being controlled by other people who who mean you harm. In in, I mean, it's different in every place has a different kind of story about about how we arrive at this at this end point. And, um, you know, the, the big um, panic happened in Singapore in 1967, I think, um, w- was sparked by fears about about these poisoned uh steam buns that people were eating and at some point like 500 people ended up in the hospital from from you know what's called a uh, uh, coral or genital retraction syndrome or um, uh, it's got a couple other names in in chinese too where they felt like their genitals were shrinking into their body um in far southern China and Hainan Island in 1984 and 85, there was a big epidemic that that went around the island, and um, the the sort of 
perceived cause of that was um, was a, a ghost or that was kind of traveling around the island and and jumping into your room at night and stealing your your genitals or your essence and it's maybe kind of related to the idea of the of the fox ghost which is a which is a kind of mythological archetype in in asian cultures where the fox has to um steal i think the male essence or um appears as like a virgin and has to convince a, a guy to have sex so she can, so the fox can um be like move up to the next plane of existence or something like that and um you know so so all these places have different um kind of explanations for for what is going on or different kind of chains of events for what's happening that that could lead your genitals to be uh sucked into your body or or disappeared or something like that but the but the feeling of panic and and uh imminent danger is kind of is 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 real similar is there a is there a cure? I mean, do, do they find a way to to stop this in these in these cultures, or is it considered a kind of mental illness, for lack of a better word? That's a tricky thing to know what to call it exactly. I mean, the Chinese government after the Hainan epidemic, the Chinese government did go in with like a big educational campaign and tried to basically convince people that that this is not happening, so don't worry about it. But when I went there. And there's been really not much written about it since then. But when I went there and talked to the the doctors in Hainan, they said, "Oh yeah, it happens every year, and it's you know it's not it's not gone. It still happens. It happened two years ago. There was an epidemic in this town, and they said it's you know it's it's hard to change the culture because what's at the bottom of people's beliefs is a causal." understanding of, of what the forces are at work, the fundamentally things that are holding the world together and that are making things happen that that cause things to happen. And so uh, the stories that we tell and the things that we believe are usually ways of, of communicating those causal perceptions to other people like this is dangerous. Watch out for this. This if you do this, this will happen good things will happen. You know, things like that. And so these stories are ways of of transmitting uh causal perception, causal knowledge. And those things are are really hard to change. Basically we're we're we we're storytelling creatures and we create these these worlds that are built out of the things that we we feel like happened to us and the people around us and those can take on their own logic and become real in some way. And they could, they feed back into our biology in ways that are, are not made up, you know, but, but the, the causes might not be exactly what we think they are. There's some things within our own culture in the United States that are sometimes seen as weird or are accepted and then later rejected. Like I remember satanic panic and, and, recovered memory syndrome in the 1980s and 90s that were very much believed at one point and then later were disregarded. Um, in, in recent years, there was like the creepy clown I mean, it was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it probably wasn't the first creepy clown uh, mania that happened in the United States. Um, and then you also have, you know, like religious communities speaking in tongues. Uh, and you have Beliefs that border on conspiracy theory, like the idea that chemtrails are somehow affecting the way we live or think. So 
obviously penis theft is something that's specific to to non-American cultures, but we have our own idiosyncrasies. Um, are these also explained in a similar manner? There's a lot of ways to look at those different things. I mean, be- beliefs are contagious, and they, they and okay. So if you take something like chemtrails, um, and okay, let's back up. So going back to what is a, a story and what is the purpose of a story? So I spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to figure it out. And I'm not like a natural storyteller, even though I write for a living. So I had to kind of reverse engineer all these, um, all this knowledge. And what I think a story is at the, at the very bottom of it is, you know, we don't remember like our, our memory is not like a seamless kind of flow of things. The way we remember things is in episodes and we remember this happened and this happened and this happened. And when we, when you're telling a story, you're selecting certain episodes that you think are important for some reason. And by arranging them in a certain way, um, you are implying that, that there's causal cohesion. So the first thing caused the second thing. And that, that whatever that thing is that that's running between those two episodes is a lot of times what we're trying to communicate to somebody when we're telling a story. And if you take a story like chemtrails, uh, where people believe that these planes are flying um, through the sky and poisoning us for some government experiment or something like that, what what that thing is that's trying to be communicated is just a a, a total distrust of the government and the world and authority and the knowledge that's being given to us. And that's, and, and when somebody tells that story to somebody else and tries to kind of convert them to believing in this, that's um, a way that, that we, that's a way that we kind of both um, convince ourselves of the story. And also the more people you can convince of a story, the more sort of true it feels. You know, so it's not unusual. That's just how people are. And that's we're as social creatures, you know, we we look around for explanations, for causal understanding, for causal perception. And then we 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 use that to kind of put the world together. You bring PMS uh, up as an example. Is that premenstrual syndrome? Yes, that's premenstrual syndrome. Yes. Can you explain a little bit how PMS might be culturally specific to America? Yeah, so this is not my idea. Let me just say that first of all. And a lot of the women uh, scholars, a lot of scholars that I that I use for this uh, this section of the book are feminist scholars who argue that uh, PMS is a culturally constructed thing, uh, constructed by like a male dominated society. Um, and there's a lot of um, a lot of history there. But basically, the idea is that. Um, you know, PMS, the, the idea of PMS first came around um, in the 1930s, and it was when women were being brought into the workforce, and but still also expected to, to do all the things at home, too. And, um, and the, the idea that was that, you know, women would have this kind of hormone overload at a certain time of month and then, and then, and then explode. And what, what a lot of feminist scholars argued was that this explosion was not caused by hormones. It was caused by, um, 
by the stress of life and the the idea of PMS became like a cultural culturally acceptable way of of offloading these frustrations to what extent does the feeling versus the actual empirical processes matter um and is it even possible to in in the case of something like PMS to suss out the actual empirical processes of what's happening they're all complex there it's never an either just biology or just psychology it's always both at work kind of in feeding off each other and so you can't just separate them out especially i mean it's it's not Depression will never be cured by just a drug alone, you know, because that's not the only thing that's at work, um, you know. So, and and in some senses, it it in some senses it does matter. In some senses, it 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 doesn't matter because, um, you know, just because if just because something is culturally um, is is has it part of its cause is rooted in in the culture and the beliefs and the narratives that that somebody is part of doesn't doesn't mean that it it's easy to solve or doesn't mean that it's like their fault or something or doesn't mean that it's any less serious than something like cancer or something like that you know or should be treated like like that but it does mean that that the the solution should be probably more multifaceted than than those things and should be looked for in in a couple different places rather than in just in one place which is typically where where medicine looks for for cures for these things there's things like depression and anxiety which can be culturally specific um and actually which are medicated as you said how does one navigate since since depression and anxiety are so common how does one navigate the possible cultural specificity of that sort of thing? I mean, we, in a way, the whole vending machine model of medicine is reassuring. You know, you, you put in the dime, you get a bag of chips. You put in the antidepressant and the depression goes away. Um, since it may, Since depression might be culturally specific to a certain extent and since the medicine is not going to be universal – across cultures, unless I'm wrong with that assumption. How do we make sense of things like depression and anxiety, which are very common things to experience? Well, I mean, there has not been a lot of progress on that front. I mean, most of the medical research money has has been for for biomedical cures for depression, you know, even though the success rate is pretty dismal. And um you know that I think the research needs to needs to shift in that direction. Um, you know, and I, there is a way of doing it. Um, there's the new DSM has what's called a cultural formulation, which is a series of questions that, when so for example, if somebody comes into your office as a psychiatrist and they believe they've been they've been hexed. Um, these are and that's causing their their symptoms or their their sickness you know there's a way to try to meet them part way and and figure out what what do you feel like is wrong with you and what what do you feel like would would help make this better and to try to meet uh try to address those 
narratives and, and respect those narratives in a way while also mixing maybe it with with some of our cultural treatments and and hopefully getting a good good outcome you know there was a woman i talked to in in hainan who is a doctor there in in china who was educated in in oklahoma and she was always trying to having to address her patients especially her older patients in she would have to sort of reframe her medical understanding of things that she learned in America to um into the terms of like Chinese traditional Chinese medicine you know so which is main a lot of talking about things in, in terms of of heat and cold and balance and things like this and so uh sort of it's it's this is not a settled area at all and there's no like one good way to do all this because we have our understanding of medicine and how the body and how it works and like other people's understanding of that is completely different and and that understanding by itself can can also be part of the of the of the cause i mean it, the the biomedical approach works pretty well with things like vaccination and antibiotics and things like that but when you come into when you move into mental illnesses it 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 falls apart. I'm curious to know, just to leave people with something to think about, what's the healthiest approach to all this? Keeping in mind that this is kind of a narrative thing. It's about stories we tell ourselves at the individual level and at the cultural level. So what's the healthiest way to walk through the world in terms of how we make sense of our own stories? That's a good question. It's a, that's kind of the biggest question in some ways. Um, I mean, for me, it means keeping an open mind and always trying to be aware of of my own beliefs and how those beliefs might be affecting, you know, my mental state or my emotional state and also physical state. And, um, you know, I if I had that answer for real, I would probably be <laughs> really wealthy and successful but you know it's i mean i think the, all we can do is just try to try to understand how these things are working and and realize the limits of our own of our own culture and our own our own beliefs and the way those things might be might be precluding solutions that that would otherwise be available to us This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Frank Burris' book, The Geography of Madness, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>